You may be seated. Thank you. And what a joy it is to read through an entire book of the Bible together uh, this last year. Um, it's a, it's a, a journey, a worthy journey that is uh, a blessing to us as a church. Uh, if you would turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Last week, if you'll remember, we were looking at the clear identification of false converts that Jesus had encountered in Jerusalem. These false converts had shown some evidence of believing, but Jesus quickly dissected and diagnosed their belief as insufficient or or disingenuine faith. They had, um, they had heard him, they had seen him, um, and Jesus uses this as an opportunity to really diagnose for a lot of us what are true disciples of the Lord Jesus. And we spent some time last week talking about what it means to be people who are truly abiding in Christ. And Jesus' words to them in John chapter 8 were very general words. They were very, uh, it was a very general and, and um, overarching truth for us to consider. Uh, they were definitely, it was definitely personally directed to them, um, but Jesus gets uh, very much more personal this afternoon as we look at these next passages. We could say, in a sense, that Jesus gets condemning He judges these people um, with his words for their disbelief or unbelief. You'll remember that uh, he says to them in John chapter 8 verse 34, that truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, Jesus says this because one of the issues that he's going to face with them, and and they've already proclaimed it, is, hey, wait a minute. The Jews are saying, we're the offspring of Abraham. And so we have a a fixed spiritual heritage already. We have a, in their minds, they had a fixed spiritual promise to hold tightly to because they were born into a family that they believed brought them a a future salvation in eternity. So Jesus is dealing with that and says, no, 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 let me correct you. We are actually dealing with personal slavery to sin. That's, That's where we stand as human beings, as personal slaves to sin. And then he begins to to break down two main ideas, um, or two additional ideas, I could say, uh, as far as what really stands in the way of us being true believers or true disciples. One, it's not about our, uh, our, our freedoms because we're not free. We're actually slaves to sin, and we can only find freedom in Christ. We dealt with that. 
Number two, we can't claim a spiritual heritage because our spiritual heritage to any man falls uh, flat and insufficient. For them, it was their spiritual heritage to Abraham. So whatever your spiritual heritage might be, whatever spiritual accolades your family or your bloodline may uh, produce in this world, that doesn't gain you spiritual salvation. So in other words, you're not saved by your family tree. And lastly, number, and I'm going to deal with that issue next week. I've kind of broken this up today in, in, a, in a unique way, so please give me a little grace. Next week, we're going to deal particularly with the argument of these Jews to say, hey, we are spiritual children of Abraham. And we're going to deal with Jesus' relationship to Abraham and how he supersedes even the prophet Abraham because he's the son of God. But in the midst of this, and, and the number three reason, the number three obstacle, the third, or excuse me, the third obstacle to truly being genuine disciples of Jesus is that in essence we are children of the devil. That's what Jesus says. I remember reading this as a new believer, and my mind was just blown. Because you don't really think of that. One, you, you have to deal with the cultural taboos surrounding our ideas of the devil, right? Like the red guy with the horns and the pitchfork sitting on the throne in hell, right? That's kind of our Looney Tune understanding of who the devil is. Just as much as when an anvil falls on your head, you become an angel and you float up to heaven, right? That's what happened to Sylvester the Cat and all those other characters growing up. My kids are looking at me like, who are you talking about? So we, we have this insufficient and incorrect understanding of who the devil is. So to hear that we, in essence, Jesus calls these Jews and us that don't believe as we are children of the devil or he is our father is a very alarming thing. So I'm going to focus this morning on really just verses 39 through, say, 47, focusing on Jesus' statements that say this. Let's read this. He answers them, Abraham, they say, Abraham is our father, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would be do, doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. As you can see, these are, again, much clearer condemnations of these people. Remember, these are people that just believed. These are people that just, in our day, probably would, we would say they made a confession of faith. Jesus is saying, you can't hear my words. You are not of God. You are a slave to sin. You are of your father, the devil, and you are doing the works of the devil. You have a, what I would call this sermon, a tragic spiritual heritage. And so the question we have to ask is three questions this morning. Number one, who is the devil? Kind of a Sunday school, grade school look at what Jesus is talking about when he says the devil. Who is the devil? What are his influences on the world throughout history? And how do we break free of his influence? And I think Jesus gives us these things in this passage as well as looking at a broader scope of the whole of Scripture to answer those questions. Number one, who is the devil? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear that he is in opposition to this devil. He's making the distinction here for these Jews. He's saying, I am doing the work of my father, but your father, you're doing his works. There's a distinction. So automatically, the Jews are offended because they think that they belong to the father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, no, we have two different fathers. And so their confusion lends to the question, well, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Now, what's interesting about that is that most commentators believe that these Jews are actually kind of in retribution toward Jesus, making a statement about his birth. Saying that because many Jews, one attack that they made upon Jesus, not only in his day but throughout history, have been that he was actually born of sexual morality. That Mary, you know, got around and and got pregnant. and, And so many commentators believe that the Jews are not only questioning those things that Jesus is saying, but they're attacking him, saying, well, listen, you may be born in sexual morality. We were not. We have one father, God. And then Jesus quickly, again, makes a distinction. No, if you were from the father, you would be loving me because I came from him. But instead, or you would be hearing his uh, his words because his words are my words. But instead, you are of your father, the devil. The word devil there is the Greek word diabolos. Literally means to throw across or to throw over. It's a a Greek compound word in the Greek. 
to throw over, to throw across. We get the understanding there, and it's used throughout history in the Koine Greek language as accuser or slanderer, to throw slandering uh, ideas uh, uh, across to someone else, to accuse them, to speak slandering uh, uh, untruth about them. And so we oftentimes say that, that, that Satan is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He is the adversary of God. Joel Beakey, the one of the uh, writes in a great book on this called Fighting Satan about the spiritual warfare in this world, says that Satan is the one who slanders God to man, as with Eve. And at times he slanders man to God as with Job and he slanders man to man. That is what the devil does in this world. His most properly used names are, he goes by Satan, which is the Old Testament word meaning accuser or adversary. Throughout Scripture, he's given many names, oftentimes relating to um, what he does in the world, his evil. He's referred to as Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the, the dragon, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the serpent, the tempter. And those are just some of the ideas about this devil well, what do we know about the devil? Well, one, we know that he is a created being and he lives under the rule of God's sovereignty. Now, we don't need to be confused here, and we'll get to this in a minute. When Jesus says he is the father of lies, he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus there is not necessarily referencing the beginning of Satan or the beginning of the devil, he's referencing uh, the fall of Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. And we'll get to that in a minute. But we do know that Satan uh, was an, an angel. Ezekiel t- chapter 28, if you've never read this passage before, Ezekiel chapter 28 is a, a great passage. Um, the prophet Ezekiel is... Uh, pronouncing judgment upon this king, the king of Tyre. But in this pronouncement of judgment, he transitions from uh, the judgment on this king to a more broader scope that, that there's no possible way that the judgment is focusing on a mere human. So if you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 through 15, or just listen, you'll understand that these uh, pronouncing judgments are actually not upon just the king of Tyre, but they are broadened to Satan himself. Chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering Sardis and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And the craft and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. 
on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now, there's definitely been critics to this verse, but throughout the whole of church history, the Christian church has seen a prophecy of judgment beyond just the mere king of Tyre, but to Satan himself representing who he was before his rebellion against God. Take note that in that passage, he is a created being, that he was created in this splendor and this beauty as an angel and servant of God. He was an anointed guardian cherub. The cherubim were the angels that were to serve God in his holiness. They were a, a, a special rank where, uh, and a, a special place of, of service for the angels among the different ranks and services of the angels. He was a created being. If you've never seen or read the great story, The Holy War by John Bunyan, John Bunyan, in a very allegorical way, takes uh, biblical truth and stories and with, with an alleg- allegory uh, writes um, kind of a... a a narrative of these things. And in his book, The Holy War, he describes what he calls Diabolos. He describes Satan as this way. He says, As to the, his original, he was first of the servants of King Shaddai, made and taken and put by him into the most high and mighty place. Yeah, was put into such principalities as belonged to the best of his territories and dominions. This Diabolus was made son of the morning, a brave place he had of it. It brought him much glory and gave him much brightness and income that might have contented his Luciferian heart had it not been insatiable and enlarged as hell itself. John Bunyan is merely just describing the, the pre-rebellion of the servanthood of Satan, or as as many call Lucifer, this angel serving the ranks of God, being able to experience the glory of God and yet rebelled against him. So Satan is a created being under the sovereignty of God. I love in Ezekiel 28, it says that you are anointed guardian cherub, and then God says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain. I placed you in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. That's a, that's a holy, sovereign God ruling over this fallen angel we call Satan, this devil. And if we continue in Ezekiel, we read of the rebellion. That Satan, an angel, a rebel angel, God casts out of heaven because he was seeking to usurp the rule of God over all things. It wasn't enough for Satan to serve God, but instead, Satan wanted to be God. He wanted the authority for himself. 
So in verses 15 through 19 in Ezekiel, still explaining who this devil is, we read, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the holy mountain, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitudes of your iniquities in, your, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire from your midst. I consumed you and I turned, I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So we know Satan this devil, this adversary of God, as one who once served God, who is still under the sovereignty and rule of God, and yet now has been cast down onto this earth to continually try to usurp the rule and the growing kingdom and majesty and glory of God in this world. So when we get to this passage in John chapter 8, and we see that Jesus calls these Jews the father of the devil, or these, yeah, these Jews have a father who is the devil, the question that I likely ask, and maybe you ask, is does Satan have children? Are we Satan's children? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, literally, no, Satan does not have children, because we know in from other passages in scriptures that, that the angels did not pre- procreate in heaven. Nowhere in scripture do we see that we are actually from the seed of Satan. We are from the seed of Adam. But instead what Jesus is communicating to these Jews is that as they were claiming a spiritual heritage from Abraham, they, were, they have misunderstood themselves. Because their actions were not reflective of a man like Abraham who worshipped God and followed God wherever God led him. Instead, their actions represented their sinfulness and their separation from God, their, their place and position as enemies of God, which reflected from Satan himself. And so in other words, it's not untrue to say that we are children of Satan if it means that we are doing what Satan does. We are reflective in our morality and in our living in such a way as Satan leads the world in such evil and sin. When we lie... We lie like Satan when we cheat, when we deceive, when we live in selfishness, when we want to be the God of our own communities and our own environments. We are merely just doing what Satan did in the beginning, rebelling against the God of the universe. 
And an interesting and startling point is that as Satan, the created being, is created to worship God as his creator, that was his purpose. So also, man, being made in the image of God, was created to worship and enjoy God forever, and yet we also are corrupted. But let's be careful to say that our corruption is not Satan's fault, thus he takes the responsibility for our fall. Satan is guilty of rebellion against God. Satan will face the judgment of being the enemy of God throughout all of history. We will see in a second how he influences our world. But Satan merely preys upon the sinfulness that's within us. The corrupted hearts that need transformation. He, lay, he, he merely lays the snare before us for us to fall in. So let's be careful in understanding who this devil is, not to give him omnipotent powers as if he is equal to God, Let's not give him <clears throat> responsibility as if our sinfulness is his fault. But let's also not ignore the facts of his existence and his opposing work in this world against the gospel. So Jesus is merely saying to these people, you are slaves to sin, and your sin manifesting itself is reflective of what the enemy of God, the one whom you have been taught about throughout your life, you are just reflecting what Satan does. As if you were his children. Because you are not believing truth, that, that Jesus is speaking that you are not doing the works of your Father who is in heaven. You are doing the works of the devil. And notice in verse 44, you are of your Father the devil and your will is to do your Father's desires. That is the root of sin, right? That in the depth of our sin is our desire to sin. Our desire to rebel against God. That is why salvation is an utter miracle. That God would so transform our desires from a rebellion and a hostility towards God to a peace and a love and a desire. So that the psalmist could say, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Children following after Satan in this world do not pant for God. They hate God. So how does he influence our world? Well, that's what Jesus is, is, is revealing to us in these passages. He's stating to us that 
to these people that, that are unbelievers, that all unbelievers, if they are doing what, they're, what Satan does, if their will is to do Satan's desires, then just as Satan is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth, so that is their desire. Our desire is not to believe in the truth and the glory of God until we are transformed in such a way that we can believe in it. Romans chapter 1. Paul is condemning the unrighteousness and how God's wrath falls upon them. Why? Because in verse 21 of chapter 1, or verse 18, that because of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. We don't want anything before Christ. We don't want anything to do with truth. Verse 21, so that although we know God, we don't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Why? Because we become futile futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. Just like Satan, we become arrogant and puffed up and wise, claiming to be wise and claiming to be beautiful and, and perfect. We really are just fools. And so how does Satan influence our world? He is constantly laying traps before us. He is constantly tempting us to fall in such a way that we would live in untruth. Like I said earlier, Jesus says that he is a murderer from the beginning. And he's referencing, I believe, back to the fall of Adam and Eve. Some people would say, no, he's talking about Cain and Abel, but it was actually the temptation of Adam and Eve whereby Adam and Eve fell into sin. And what did God promise Adam and Eve? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely what? Die. And so thereby, Satan tempted them into sin and thus became a murderer. And every time that we see the character of Satan revealed to us throughout the scriptures, he is tempting people to rebel against God. And in that rebellion against God, they are being murdered because of death. Death entering into the world. Separation from God. And so we can say that our personal sin, like I said earlier, does not originate from Satan. But he tempts people to rebel against God daily. He preys upon our human weakness. He wants us, as the father of lies, to not stand in the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us that 
in the case of the God of this world, he is blinding the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here he is laying traps for us. He is trying to to keep us from standing in the truth, trying to keep us from doubting the, the words of God. But he is also blinding the minds of unbelievers. As the seeds of the gospel in Matthew chapter 13 state, the seeds are thrown and what did the birds do? They come and snatch it up. There Satan is trying constantly in this world with a legion of demons to try to keep unbelievers from believing in the gospel which makes him a murderer. He is promoting eternal separation and death by tempting people to rebel against God. Because only in God, through the son, His Son, Jesus Christ, is there life in Him. And so He influences, He tempts, He blinds the minds of people. But let's be very clear, you and I are not slaves to Satan. We are slaves to sin. We are not slaves to Satan. He does not control us. We don't have to speak incantations and, 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 and babble about to try to remove ourselves or disconnect ourselves from Satan. He is not omnipresent as God is trying to, uh, to where we believe Satan is behind every little bush and every little sickness and every little thing. Satan is not an equal to God. He is merely an angelic being that had rebelled against God and all he's doing is trying to disrupt whatever he can upon this earth to disrupt the gospel and the kingdom of God until his final end. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us of that. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that our struggle against Satan includes a struggle with an army of demons, the principalities, the powers, the authorities over this present darkness. That these demons, with the leadership of Satan, are making their purpose in existence to disrupt the affairs of the church, to bring disunity among believers, and to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the the light of the gospel. And what's so interesting and encouraging to me is knowing that Satan and his demons are, are trying to blind the minds of people, and yet day by day people are coming to Christ. Which, what does that tell us? That their power is limited, that their efforts are futile, that who Jesus, by his grace, chooses to save, Satan cannot oppose that in such a way that God loses. Matter of fact, we could say that not only is he trying to tempt us to sin, and not only is he trying to disrupt, disrupt the gospel ministry, 
But we could say that Satan's influence is limited to a permission from God. We could say it this way. Satan's freedom on this world operates under the thumb of God's rule. Job chapter 6, Satan has to come and seek permission. 1 Samuel, Saul is tormented by an evil spirit until God's young man uh, David comes and and with the harp shows victory over even the, the struggle of and the torment of Saul. And then of course we get to the glorious victory over the Lord of, of the Lord Jesus over Satan. That his influence is limited because of the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. We read and understand that the final blow has been given. Satan has been defeated. He is not going to be defeated. His final judgment will come when Jesus returns. But at the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ, by fully, uh, as fully God and fully man going upon the cross, bearing the weight of God's wrath, dying and being buried in the grave, and then rising from the dead, the resurrection is the victory that defeated Satan. He is Lord. And as, he, as the, the Lord of all creation, he gives the believers in him victory, power, comfort, rest, that no matter what Satan is doing in this world, we can have victory. We can have power over sin. We can escape the temptations that Satan puts before us because we belong to him. We belong to Christ. And we know that Satan's influence one day will be completely eliminated from this world. Revelation chapter 20 reminds us that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and, where, and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The final victory where Satan will be eliminated from his influence over this world. So how can we be free from his influence? I think Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 verses 45 through 47. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about him being the father of his character, speaking lies. But then Jesus says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason, you, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus' clear judgment is upon these believers that have claimed to know Jesus, but they don't understand. 
They don't believe in him truly. And he makes a very clear statement in in the form of a question. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, he's saying, in in one question, he's saying, you are sinful and unable to judge rightly of the truth because you don't belong to God, and two, I am sinless. And so the contrast is being made between Satan, who is the father of lies, who is the tempter of sin, and Jesus, who is there speaking the truth as the Son of God, and who is sinless. And yet they chose not to believe in him. So how can we be free from the influence of Satan? Number one, we trust in Christ alone. We understand that the real victory on the cross was brought to us not by our effort or by our hard work, but by the sinless Son of God who sacrificed Himself on the cross, who took the wrath of sin and experienced death and then rose victoriously from the grave so that we can trust in Him. We find freedom from Satan and sin and death in Christ Jesus. Again, Joel Beakey in his book says that Satan is continually trying to bruise the heel of God's people. But we know that Jesus Christ has already dealt the final death blow to Satan that has rendered his judgment the crushing of Satan's head. So we trust in Christ alone. We put our faith that Jesus Christ has accomplished what is necessary for sin to be forgiven, for death to be overcome, and for Satan's influence to be put at bay because of Christ's power. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself Likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. We have forgiveness for our trespasses. Because Jesus canceled the record of debt debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we trust in Christ alone. That's our escape. That's our freedom. But as we are trusting in Christ, the scriptures give us more clarity, more understanding than these people had opportunity to understand. One, because they were not believers. But let me encourage you, church, practically, that not only do we trust in Christ, but we oppose the evil that Satan promotes. We oppose it. We don't just recognize that evil exists. We resist it, or another word is oppose the work of Satan. 
1 Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. That means oppose him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is where the church stands up and, and, and basically calls evil for evil. We speak up and say, this is untrue, this is wrong, this is sinful, this is unholy. This is us resisting in an offensive way the actions of Satan in this world. And we do so firm in our faith. We're sober-minded, we're watchful, we know he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, which means kill, if we could just read into the text there. That doesn't mean he wants to injure, he wants us to be destroyed. So we need to be aware of his schemes, of his temptations, and we oppose them. We oppose him with the firmness and the resoluteness, not of our own strength, but our faith in Christ. The faith given to us, the power given to us in Christ. And what's interesting is Peter is saying this to a persecuted church. So he is saying, listen, Be watchful. Your adversary is going to come with suffering and with persecution wanting to destroy you. And he says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Oppose him. Knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we stand up, we stand firm for the truth of the gospel, for the holy things of God. And how do we do that? Well, we look back to the way that, that Satan attacked Jesus, our Lord, in the wilderness. How did he combat Satan? He combated him with the word of God. He loaded the shotgun with the slugs of Scripture to fire off into the heart of the evil one. The Word of God is our weapon against his advances. We resist him, praying for God's grace and and, and the alertness that we need to understand his schemes. In church, that means schemes in our marriage, devices, with our children to tempt them to sin, schemes and and temptations in our churches to cause disunity, to cause us to go, you know, did God really say that we should enact church discipline, that we should really stand for for this sin? Because I really love that brother or sister. But that we stand, we resist his advances. We resist and oppose his invasion into our lives and into our ministries. And I'm not saying we go around rebuking Satan. 
over everything. But we stand firm in the word of God. So when, when our, our marriage is under attack, we're going to God's word and we're saying, God says that my, uh, God's word says for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And my temptation right now is to be selfish and to be angry and to be impatient. But I need to honor my husband, show respect to him. I'm pretty unhappy with certain things in the church, but but God tells me to show respect to my elders, to equip and admonish the believers. And so I'm going to stand firm on those truths and resist and oppose that disunity for the sake of what the Scriptures tell me because I love Christ and His Word and His church. These people could not understand Christ. They didn't believe in him. They were merely doing the works of their father. And so, if you go down in chapter 8, down to verse 59, they were and became what their father was doing. Verse 59, it says, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So what did they become? Well, In the Jewish culture, they would take stones, but it wasn't to injure someone. It was to kill them. It was a form of judgment. And a self-righteous judgment, but yet murder nonetheless. Because they had judged inappropriately, and they were trying to murder the Son of God. And no doubt it's the same people that will cry, crucify him, crucify him, putting Jesus upon the cross. So we oppose the evil that Satan's promote that we that Satan promotes. And going back to First Peter chapter five, if I can, the second part of that little section of verses in verse ten, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while of this persecution and this attack from Satan, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's where we need to be as a church. We need to understand that even as Satan attacks, even as Satan tries to inflict pain and disunity, God uses those things for his glory. That's what Peter's saying. Your adversary's prowling around wanting to devour you. Resist him, firm in your faith. You're going to experience the suffering. And as you suffer, the God of grace who's called you will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, God uses Satan's attacks to make you and sharpen you and grow you as a believer. These sufferings and temptations are an iron forge that is shaping your Christian walk. It's refining Christ in you. So how do we escape? We trust in Christ. 
And as we are trusting in him, we oppose the evil that Satan promotes, and we find our rest and our comfort in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says it is finished, when, we, when he says the battle is over, then we trust in that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we put on the, the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, prayer. All these things in the armor of God are things that we have readily available for us as believers to find rest in. We don't like, I need to go get the, the righteousness the breastplate of righteousness and put it on today. You have the breastplate of righteousness. You have that in Jesus. The belt of truth is in Jesus. He is the truth. God has given you these things as believers. So find rest in his protection. Be aware and be vigilant. Or vigilant, don't, don't just... Sit around as lazy believers, be, be understanding and, and, and have a, re, a realistic focus of the attacks and the schemes of the devil. But know and understand that Jesus Christ has given us what we need in his victory on the cross. So while we're aware of Satan's attacks, we are not afraid of him. And lastly, and most importantly, just as these Jews here in this passage were following after the work and the plan and the will of Satan, let me encourage you, as I did last week, to evaluate, are you doing the works of God, your Father, by the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus, or does your life personify the works of Satan and his rebellion against God? Because if it's the second, then we could say to you, in essence, that you are children of the devil. And that you need to turn from your rebellion and your arrogance and your self-worship and believe and trust in Christ. Because the finality of Satan is eternal judgment and suffering in hell for all eternity just as it is for all those who follow after him. So believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in his work upon Calvary's cross. Understand the sacrifice and the atonement that he made for your sin and your rebellion. Understand that the peace that you need in your life is not found in worldly things or, or the, 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 the things that Satan and, and this worldly philosophy offers, but that your peace and your rest is found in Jesus Christ alone. So trust in him and believe in him and you will be saved. Would you pray with me?